Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Today, Present Company is in Houston. I made the track from Los Angeles to sit down with Brene Brown at her headquarters, and I can tell you right now it was worth the trip. In 2010, Brene took the stage in Houston as a research professor and delivered a TED Talk on vulnerability. That talk has now been viewed more than 50 million times and made Brene and her work world famous. She's now the author of five best-selling books, and her special, The Call to Courage, is now on Netflix. In this conversation, we go back to the very beginning of the story, to her early dreams and struggles, and we talk about how she navigates her enormous success today. Quick note, you might hear an AC unit whirling away at the top of the interview. It's Houston, and it was hot, people. But bear with us, it cuts out really soon. Okay, so one of the things I've been dying to talk to you about is Texas. Okay. Okay. Now, as a state, as, or a, as a state, or a state of, of mind, all of it, as okay. a state, as a state of okay. mind, as so you're fifth generation Texan. True. Okay. At what point, and you're the oldest of your, of my squad, of I'm, your squad I'm, I'm of, the oldest of siblings, of yeah. right? So at what point did you say, I'm going to stay in Texas? Was there ever a conversation where you're like, I'm going to get out of Texas. I'm going to go to school somewhere else. I'm oh, going to make God, my life yes. somewhere else. I got to get out of this place. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. High school. So I found this book called Birds of Paradise. And it was a book about Studio 54 and all the people who hung out there. And I read it every night. And it was like... Bianca Jagger and Mick Jagger and all the New York people. And so when I when I was a junior, I decided that I would go to FIT. And Makes moved, sense. Yeah, and moved to New York. And what I was really interested in was window design. Yeah, so I always thought I'd get out. You know, and up until that point, I only wanted to be like what I had access to seeing, which was like a cruise director like Julia Loveboat. A truck driver, I wanted to do that for a while, a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Um, but when I found like this whole New York kind of urban, gritty, party, beautiful people, I was like, I'm going to be a bird of paradise. I'm going to live in New York. I'm going to go to FIT. So what happened? So I think I got into FIT and I got into UT, which is very different than FIT, um, University of Texas. And my parents were in the midst of a tumultuous, long three-year divorce. And I decided that I wanted to hitchhike across Europe. So I made a big presentation with the, I don't know if you remember the book, Europe on a Dollar a Day. So I made a big presentation and said, I can get through college for sure in three years. 
um, I want to spend the first year in Europe. And I think my mom was like mortified and said, absolutely not. And so my dad said yes, because they were in the middle of this tumultuous divorce. Did you have any fear of other getting into the wrong car? I definitely got in the wrong car a couple times. I got, I really got in the wrong car one time, which really ended in like a five mile an hour tuck and roll right out. Yes. I got in the car, one car. Yeah, I think it was different back then. I think a lot of people did it. I mean, like you just find a corner where there weren't like 10 college students standing there. I think it was different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I rode back to, my home base was Brussels and I rode back in the back of like an orange truck from Spain one time. Like I did have a URL pass for a couple months and then there was like a secret hostel Mm -hmm. where they would change your URL pass expiration date. So I found that and then did the URL Lapland tour like up all the way through Scandinavia. I was definitely equal parts adventurous, wild, immature, dangerous, hurting. And after that period, you came back home? I came back home and I I couldn't get back into UT because they just had fall. I came back like in December. I left in June and came back in December. I couldn't get into UT, but so I went to St. Mary's, a Catholic school in San Antonio, um, because I was raised Catholic, and all my cousins from San Antonio who, you know, all went to Catholic schools in San Antonio went to St. Mary's. So I went to St. Mary's, and then I was there for like three years, and I had, I ended up with like a 0.14 GPA. Wow. That's, yeah. that's actually takes work in a weird way. It does. Get. It actually takes signing up for classes and then not attending them and then getting like a technical failure. And then I got called into like the, like, I don't know, the provost office or something. I don't know what, I don't think I knew what it was back then, but I'm sure it was like the provost or that dean of students. And they said, well, this is not a country club. You don't get to live here and just play tennis all day and then bartend at night. Like you have to go to school if you're going to live here. And I was like, that's too bad. And so I left, got a job, <laughs> got a job taking calls in Spanish for AT&T. And at any point during this period, did you lose your dream of going to FIT or going and moving into like an urban? Yes, because during this period of time, I, my parents' marriage disintegrated and we kind of lost everything. And there was no like, hey, can you write me a check and send me to FIT? That was gone. There was a new reality that my parents were living in. Um, and so I was kind of on my own. And so... I got this job for AT&T. Gracias por llamar AT&T. Mi nombre es Brené. And so I would take customer service calls. And I did that for five or six years. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to go to UT. And they were like, no, thank you. Because of my GPA. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. And, I'll, and that was a real, that was a fight because um, I went and I talked to them and they were like, yeah, we don't, it's a, it's, you know, it's a great story. No. This is a tough university to get in. And so they said, go to a junior college. And I was like, oh my God, really? So I moved in with my great aunt on Lake Travis and got a job waiting tables and went to junior college. And then I took my grades, got a 4.0. And they're like, that's great. Do it again. Another semester, 4.0. They're like, that's really great. One more time. And I remember walking from campus and there's like the drag, Guadalupe Street. And I remember being at a 7-Eleven on a payphone, sobbing with my mom and saying, they're still not letting me in. And by this point, you know, I'm 26 or 27. 
you know, and I'm, I'm watching all the little 18 year olds that live on West Campus and they're, you know, their little colorful striped belts. Remember those belts we used to wear mm-hmm. that was like, like Guatemalan belts with the leather mm-hmm. thing and, you know, and their short, you know, little Levi shorts and their sorority t-shirts. And I'm on the payphone like, they're still not going to let me in. Um, and then that third, that third time I got another 4.0 and they're like, welcome. So you go find that guy and say, I made it. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because the age of 27, that is a very precarious age because I feel it's culturally, it's when youth dies. Totally. It's that. And we look at, uh, we look at it. It's like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Amy Winehouse, you know, there's some tripwire where you're no longer a kid. You're no longer potential. You're kind of who you are. And that's true. What I'm so interested in, in about in your story, of course, all the work you've done and all that help you've given people, but the fact that you came at it late in life, like this is mm-hmm. a path that was a struggle. And most people are written off now, especially in the way we're raising our children sure. or the environment, you're written off. Like, oh, you didn't get into Harvard. Ugh. Okay. Well, what are you doing? You're, you're 22. Where's your job? Where's your career? Where's your, you know, there's... Where's the moving escalator? Yeah. Where's success? The, right. Yeah. No, I really live and die by the belief nothing wasted. You know, and so when I went back, <clears throat> I wanted to be a history major. And I had to walk through the social work building. And I was like, this place is like amazing. They were having like a demonstration and there was, you know, an AIDS activist and there was like things on the wall that were like, you know, we'd volunteers to work with abused kids. Like, I was like, this place is incredible. I didn't even know that, of that you know, like I didn't know what that meant. Um, and then I got to the history department. Everyone was white, like over 70, all men and huge foreheads. And I was like, this is not going to be a good look on me. Like where there's no, there, my people mm-hmm. are not here. So I walked back over to social work. And so I think... I wasn't meant to, you know, I graduated when I was 29 from my bachelor's degree and then mm-hmm. went straight through my MSW and my PhD. But I learned more rolling out of cars in Spain and bartending, you know, than probably than I have in my entire formal education. I would not, you know, when my daughter's a soft, you know, she's getting ready to be a junior in college now. And, you know, I told her, she's like, you know, mom, I don't know what to do. It's so awkward. I don't know what I'm going to be. And it's, I'm cring- it's super cringy because all my friends are, you know, and I said, if you know what you're going to be, I'm not paying for college. You'll need to take a gap decade or do something. Yeah. Because I've spent too many years interviewing, especially young women, but also young men in their late 20s, who are the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers, the coders, all the things that they were supposed to be. And they're so miserable and so deflated. And I was like, you need to find what you love. And this is an, a very unique opportunity to do that. And so she's doing it. Mm-hmm. How does she deal with her mom's fame? Or your family in general? Because they're <sighs> part of your yeah. conversation, which I think is so interesting. It feels when you talk, uh, part of your gift is we're with you. We're, we're a family member. You have an, everybody sitting in that auditorium and at UCLA feels like a family member and you you that transcends how you watch your specials which is such a gift but that means they're part of it you know they are and they're not and so I you know the stories I tell are usually stories they'll bring up and say this would be a great story for your work I try to find the line between being their mother is a part of my story and I don't want to hijack their story 
you know, I don't want to already write a story for them because I have a big platform, you know, so, so I think we're, we're careful about it. I'm probably overly apologetic for it. Like, you know, I, I always get mortified if she'll call and say, oh, we watched your TED talk in class today. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Right. And she's like, you know, like, it's okay. Or Charlie will say, all my friends have seen your Netflix, but you know, I'm like, and he's, you know, 14. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. They're like, no, it's cool. It's great. It's fine. But I'm also super boundaried. And so Ellen had a teacher in high school, one teacher in her freshman year that was like, you know, please stand and read your mom's essay that was in Oprah magazine or something in O magazine. And so, you know, that's one call to the principal the next day from me. That's like, here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. You know, and the social workers at that school are trained in my work. And they were going to roll out this big thing. And I said, great, you can roll it out the year behind Ellen. But you're not going to roll it out and force her to do that work mm -hmm. in front of her friends. Like, it's just too weird. Right. Because you're her mom. It's my mom. <laughs> you're her mom. How has been the whole trajectory of, of hanging out with Gwyneth Paltrow, going to do Super Soul Sunday? I mean, I the... Dak Shepard and I listened to the Russell brand. And I mean, it's just, you are part of that circle. How did, oh, no, how no, did no. that feel to be, but how's the experience been for yeah, you? I'm definitely not part of that circle. It's really interesting. And I, and I would be so curious on your take on this. I really, would. okay. I'm okay, here. Yeah. I have no celebrity gene. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Okay. But elaborate on that. I just have no celebrity gene. I don't get excited. I don't get starstruck. I don't get, I mean, every now and then I'll meet someone that kind of like, I'm really excited to meet them because I think they're interesting, but I just don't have any celebrity thing at all. I just see a person, you know, and um, doing the best they can with what they have and trying to, you know, leave, you know, leave the world a better place. And so I like people like that. And I like it whether it's, you know, one of my daughter's friends or son's friends or a famous person. I just, I don't do something very well. Self-importance. Because it's like really the more self-important and kind of bloated and posturing someone gets with me, the more I see their fear. Like, I can't turn it off. That's what I do for a living. So the more people are like, whoa, you know, like, you know, like you can only imagine like what it'd be like with Trump or something, you know, mm -hmm. like the more posturing and blustery people get, the more fear I see in them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to be in a space with someone that's not comfortable in their own skin. What happens to you when you're faced with that? I'm just like, I'm not buying it and I ain't fixing it. So freaking move on. Like, so, oh, you don't try to. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, uh, you talk to my, like my, my 30 year old self, maybe would have been like, let me lean in. And, mm -hmm. you know, like, no, I'm like, no, mm -mm. moving on, taking my Topo Chico and going home. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, no, I just can't. And so I don't mind crazy as long as there's some self-awareness around it. But if your crazy is hidden under self-importance, cruelty to others, judgment, like that, I can't, I just don't do it anymore. Well, the thing that drives me crazy is the like, well, I told you I was an asshole, 
or that kind of, you know, oh, well, I'm just crazy, but it needs to be done this way. That kind of like, I'm the self-identifying statement and then the behavior and you're like, well, that drives me batshit crazy. Yeah, me too. That's a trigger for me. It's a trigger because it's armor. It's like really saying what I want to say is, and what I have probably said many times is announcing it doesn't give you permission to do it. Exactly. And how is it, it, just to get back to Texas, because Texas, it's it's funny to me and ironic that, you know, I'm coming to Texas to talk about shame yeah. and vulnerability yeah. and honesty and all this stuff uh, in the in the state that's perceived as the least vulnerable, the toughest state in the union. You know, you have America's football team with the Dallas Cowboys. You've got the cheerleaders. You know, this is you had pageant girls. Apologies for that. But yeah. Yeah. But and you had every pageant girl for a year yeah. when I was growing up. Every Miss America was from Texas yeah. and every one of them made it into the top five. And I find that so many actors that I meet that are from Texas are resilient. They have a like armadillo skin. Like you cannot <laughs> kill them. <laughs> you can run them over and you can try, but, but they, they won't die. They have a level of competition and a level of stuff that <laughs> it just doesn't. And here you are, you know, yeah, building an empire in Texas around vulnerability. Um... I I think there's mythology around Texas that makes us, you know, if it doesn't repel you, then it attracts you, you know, it's, um, and I think there is something, I don't know how to say this in the right way, so it might take me two or three times. Um, I don't think anyone is going to start a conversation about the unsaid that doesn't have a little bit of folksiness and down-home humor to them. I think if it's like, you know, a therapist from New York in, you know, a cashmere wrap, people are going to be like, I can't, I don't, I can't relate to that. I, I can't do that. But my dream was always to do this work and push it into the world and stay back. Mm-hmm. Like what person, what normal person wants to put themselves out there like that. What normal woman would want to do that? Like, especially because I don't look like a movie star. You know, I'm sitting here, I got my size 12 shirt on, my mm-hmm. size 10 skirt, because um, I'm built like a triangle. And I have, you know, and, you know, my wrinkly kind of face, because I've been in the sun all summer and I'll continue to stay in the sun. So I wanted to put the work out and hang back. But the problem became that the power in the work came from me and my storytelling and the power of the work came from watching me wrestle with it. And it was watching me wrestle with it that resonated with people. So I think the Texas in me, I am tough. And I, I am a kind of a you know straight shooter. I don't like to, a lot of bullshit. And I love storytelling. And those are big Texas parts of me. There was a look when, that I cannot get out of my head at the end of your, the TED talk, right? The Mm -hmm. famous TED talk. Mm -hmm. The look when you said, that's all I've got. And you walked off and you, you turned a little bit and the camera caught it. And it's just this look of, of everything all at once. Vulnerability, fear, relief, 
questioning whatever was the secret sauce that made that TED Talk and TEDx really, you know, in Houston, specific to Houston, go viral. But to me, it was that look. And you still have that look at times, which I think is kind of amazing considering the trajectory you've been on um, for 10 years. You don't come at anything with an arrogance of knowing. And when you left that speech, it was like, I don't know. And you had that, it was almost like childlike. Uh, I think I have that look probably every time I walk off a stage. Yeah. Do you ever, is there any way to develop a skin thick enough to look at the comments? Yeah, I mean, I'm such a data seeker. It's how I'm built. Like, I want to know. And I want good feedback. I don't care about I Hard feedback is, I, I get hard feedback every day. Like, my team will be like, that was a solid 6 out of 10. That's fine. In, as long as you can tell me why it was a 6 out of 10 so I can do something different. I don't mind hard feedback at all. So in order to scrounge for that, you got to read through some of the stuff. It's like, no one cares. I hope you kill yourself. You know, I hope everyone in your family gets cancer and dies in front of you. Like you have to read that stuff. You know, you're ugly, you're fat, you're stupid, you're old, you know, like you have to read through all that. And I think, who is it that does like the celebrities reading the mean tweets? Oh yeah. Kim will do that. It's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really helps because I think when you know, it's you know, it's like that saying that I always heard in AA, misery doesn't love company, it demands it. Mm-hmm. And so, which is so true, right? Um, which is why I like to make everyone miserable around me when I'm miserable. I think seeing people I respect get shitty comments or, you know, then I just, you know, I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm in good company. It's fine. Everyone has it. Yeah. yeah. So I, it, but it also depends on my mood. If I'm in a tender place, I just don't go near it. If I'm looking for confirmation that I'm not good enough, I don't go. If I feel strong in what I'm doing and a strong sense of self, right, and that, that I can read through it. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I want to talk about two things while Cheap. I have you here. Faith. Mm-hmm. Because both of us were raised Catholic. Yes. And I got the perception, I, I interpreted that you were not necessarily a person of faith, but you came back to it. Is that accurate? Yes, I was, yes, yeah. And what made you come back to it and how are you with it now? So I was born in the Episcopal, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church. Then I went to, we moved to New Orleans. So I went to a Catholic grade school. And then one day I got pulled out of class. Literally, I thought, when I walked in the office, I thought it was God. It was like a bishop in like regalia. And he said, let's read the Nicene Creed together. And we read the Nicene Creed. And he asked me kind of line by line what I thought it meant. And then he sent home a note to my parents saying she's Catholic now. Yes. <laughs> well, she's got to love the Catholics. Wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, my, so then, I, and then we suggest you do the same. And so then my, my parents went through Maranatha or whatever the Catholic mm-hmm. classes were and became Catholic. So then I was kind of raised Catholic. And, you know, didn't have it, you know, went to, went to mass every Sunday growing up, went, didn't have any problem going to a Catholic church. But then it was like 1984. I graduated from high school in 83. It was 1984. And that's kind of the birth of the religious right. And then all of a sudden, all these Jesuits that I was raised around who were like liberation theologists making their way back from, you know, witnessing atrocities in Central America, like all of a sudden now there was like, there was no line between super conservative politics 
um, including, you know, women's rights with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And so I got really confused. And so then the more that grew, I mean, I remember, I think it was, you know, Bush won in the Republican convention, like holding up signs, you know, a vote for Bush is a vote for God. And even my dad, who was like, you know, a right wing conservative was like, whoa, like that is not good, you know, because he's kind of a Goldwater conservative, mm-hmm. traditional like separation guy. Then I became developmentally appropriately anti-organized religion, like for, yeah, to the point where when I first became a faculty member, like I would have the stickers on my door that said, you know, Jesus save me from your followers, like, like just <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, never stopped praying, never stopped believing in God, got ambiguous around Jesus a little bit. Um, and kind of stuck, got sucked in, you know, thought maybe I should be Jewish. Um, because a lot of the clinic defense training and things that I was going to was held, were held at temples around, you know, Houston. And so I, I just, I got so confused. And then I did that thing that most parents do when their kids are like, what is God? And you're like somewhere between I'm going to go to hell for not teaching what God is and having that. My husband was also raised Catholic and having a spiritual identity and a belief in something greater than us was paramount to our upbringing. And so we said, you know, let's get to church. Let's give our kids some literacy around theology. And then if they want to jump ship or change or whatever, that's great. We don't care, but let's give them something a platform because we were grateful that we had one. Mm-hmm. And so we both, we, I went back to the Episcopal church. She became an Episcopalian and we raised our kids in Episcopal church. And so it seems to fit both with my, you know, have you been to a church that's not Catholic? Uh, Presbyterian. Yeah. It's hard when you're raised liturgical, like there's a cadence to it, right? Mm-hmm. Do you find it comforting that well, the Presbyterians was, was so much singing, and there feels to be like there's a lot of joy. Yeah, yeah, there was. Yeah, there's that's Episcopal Church is a lot of joy too. Yeah, a lot of joy, and I and I yes, where Catholicism seems like there's not a lot of joy. It's it's you're kneeling. It's very, um, it's dogmatic, basically, and it's penance driven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my grandmother used to always say to us, uh, you know, I would fall and you know skin my knee or whatever. Uh, get heard, and it was like, well, God's punishing you for something you did. And that was something like, oh, what did I do? What did I do? What did yeah. I do? Uh, or a recognition of, but now I look at it as kind of a gift because it gave me at such a young age a recognition of I'm not the only one in the world. The world does not re- revolve around me. Oh my God, there yes. was something always bigger than me. And what did I do? And how did I handle that situation? And is that skin or that hurt or that incident a reminder? of myself in the world. So, That's but at the beautiful. time when you were little, it was, oh, you know, you try to figure out. Yeah, he's watching and he's not, he's yeah. not kind. Correct. So yeah. uh, one of the other things that really affected me in hearing you speak and, and learning about what you did was that idea of, and I equate it as fear, but you have a much better way of saying it, where every time I say goodbye to my kids or every time I get on a plane or any time I take any action in my life or 
I'm going to do a new job, like I was saying, like leaving Vanity Fair and going to do Netflix. Well, something terrible is going to happen because it's it's too joyful or I'm too excited about oh, this. Yeah. And with my kids, every day before they go to school, I have that moment with them. And I live in this kind of perpetual loop of, is this going to be the last time I see them or something terrible going to happen? And I realize like it's informed from my past. And we also live in this world of, of terror around us all yeah. the time. Our kids have active shooter drills once a month. Correct. So how does one get through that? And I was so relieved to know that you had it. That's what, that's really what oh, I was saying. Yes. I was so relieved. And I was like, oh, is that what shame is? Is that shame? Well, I mean, I think foreboding joy, like the, the need to dress rehearse tragedy. Dress rehearse tragedy. Yeah. yeah. In really joyful moments is more about vulnerability than shame. But having chronic and compulsive foreboding joy can be shaming. Like I can feel, I can feel shame around how much I do that, like something's wrong with me. I think, first of all, it's a trope that's used in film and story always, always we, see the happy person, you know, piddling around the house when we know they're going to cut to a scene and that person's child is dying or something. So it's a trope used to manipulate and milk people for emotion all the time. And so we're very visual people and it's not hard. I mean, everyone that I know that really has a lot of foreboding joy who pictures the plane going down, who pictures their kids, you know, at prom getting in the car crash. They play a movie in their head. And we're not short on images to use for those movies. From film, from TV, from the news. And so I think it is a manipulation and a perversion of vulnerability. And the only way I've seen out of it, to be honest with you, is, and no one talks about this, but I talk about gratitude. So that's the way out, to be grateful in those moments where we feel vulnerability has a physiology. Like it shoots something through our body where it's, it's the same thing if you're getting ready to say, I love you first in a new relationship or ask someone on a date or have a hard conversation with an employee, like it shoots an adrenaline through you that you can either use as a reminder to be grateful and get centered or to fight and flight, you know? And I think dress rehearsing tragedy is just a form of fight and flight. But the one thing that people, and I wish I would have said this on the Russell Brand podcast or with Dax because Dax is sober and Russell's sober and I'm sober and we talk about it a lot. But one of the things that my therapist friends tell me all the time is seriously stop watching the 24-hour news cycle. Stop embedding images that you use to terrorize yourself. <laughs> it was hard when you were in news. <laughs> like when when you are in news, like, yeah. And the idea of, yeah. but I had to stop watching the loop, you know, the dumpster dive of, of cable television for yes. sure. And I, and because I am, so curious by nature, I listen to both sides right. constantly because I want to. I want to purview. What are they thinking? How are they? Yeah. How are they framing yeah. this? Yeah. But we've got to like, we weren't 
like I was scrolling, I read the New York Times every morning and online, and there was the picture of the immigrant father and Mm -hmm. his toddler daughter, Mm -hmm. you know, face down in the water. And I was like, where's the line? Because it took me three days to get that image out of my head. Mm -hmm. When we become desensitized to seeing that, we've got a huge problem. Like think about when you're driving your car in your neighborhood and you see a dog that's been killed on the side of the road and you're driving, you catch it. And then what do you do? Like you go, oh God, like, and you shudder, right? We're trained, you know, our bodies are built to have that response, but yet we take in entertainment that has a, you know, Game of Thrones. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, like we, we take in these images and we think that we do that and it's benign? No, those images are queued up and ready when we feel our most vulnerable, which is when we're with our children, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I gave this talk, I used to give this talk all the time where I would say, okay, Christmas Eve, you just spent an amazing dinner with your parents. It was so fun to see your parents with your children. You're back in the car going home, light snowfall, you, you, your partner, your kids, you're singing jingle bells, what happens next? And I'm so sure of that everyone's gonna scream car crash that I have a car crash slide queued up next. (laughs) Yeah, or a meteorite falls in the house or anything, earthquake, yeah. Yeah. Death and destruction. Mm -hmm. And then when they all shout that out and then I show that picture already on my deck, they're like, how'd you know? And I'm like, because we so want to protect ourselves from pain that we think if we live disappointed, it will hurt less than actually feeling disappointed. And it's such a tremendous price to pay. You know, and I think that's part of faith for me. You know, we talk about joy and faith. I don't think I can access joy without my faith because I have to be grateful And I have to believe that God wants me to experience joy. And that I'm not going to be punished every time I experience it by something bad happening. And that's that's not fact, that's faith for sure. Mm -hmm. That's very well said. I don't know, but I'm seeing stars right now. So I just really, yeah. It's such a tender place for me. It's I'm so Yeah, no, it's a very it's a mm-hmm. it's one of the things I was just that's changed it's evolved in my life because of having children really, you know, you wear your your hearts you know, your hearts are out there in the world and when they get older it gets you know, little people, little problems. Uh, you know, are they gonna learn to walk? Are they gonna learn to talk? And then, you know, when you're releasing them out in the world and they, they and you realize they come out hardwired and and not wanting to inflict the patterns that you've yeah. grown up with. And, and that is one that's so acute for me. And you, you put it in a really good way. Uh, so what's next for you? You have five New York Times bestsellers. You have the specials and following. Obviously, the Netflix thing is huge. How is all of this success changed your life? I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't know. I think I wanted to start a global conversation about shame and vulnerability. I think that's wildly enough happened. 
I think in some ways the success holds me accountable. Does it put more pressure on you to... No. I think the pressure it puts on me is to live my work and to not do what you just said, to not accumulate, acquire, do more and more, but to actually live what I believe is true. And I think that means stay tethered to the idea that we've had for 20 years, which is serve the work. And so when bright, shiny things come along, you know, do you want to do a talk show? Do you want to have your show? Do you want to, you know, does that serve the work? And 99% of the time, it does not serve the work. I'm not the work. And so it may serve me, it may serve some type of celebrity, but it doesn't serve my work. And so I think what the success does is positions an imperative for me to stay very clear about what's important and not important for me. And so in a world that's really built around further, faster, I am a slower, closer kind of person. And that's what serves me, my family, and the work. So I'm really curious about exploring more things on Netflix or, you know, a larger platform because it's a way to get the work global, which is so exciting for me. Really hard to start a global conversation when you don't like to travel very much because you got, you know, I don't want to, I don't miss, you know, games and things mm-hmm. that my kids are in. And so that's been such a gift of Netflix. So I think for me, whatever it is, it will be my way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll do it my way. Yeah. I know the traveling, I love you. You hate flying. You hate, I have the same thing. It's like lack, like we're not in control. Yeah. Yeah, just and surrendering to, to that. Yeah. You know, I just, I will go when I need to, but I think there is so much value in being a part of the daily rhythm of my family's life. Like it's not swooping in for the plays and the moments. It's packing the lunches. It's the conversation driving carpool. It's, I don't want to miss that. That that stuff is very time limited. All right. I'm going to ask you these questions. I ask everybody. Okay. So what are you eating? I'm keto. Okay. What does keto mean? High fat, moderate protein, low carb. So, and, but I get really, I get like kneaded out. So I'm kind of doing, I do kind of a, as much plants as I can based keto. What are you reading? I'm reading Liz Gilbert's new book, City of Girls. And what have you binge watched recently? Oh my God. I'm so sad. It's over. Oh my God. I'm so sad. On Netflix, call my agent. I love, I could have thought of a million things that you were going to say, and I would never have predicted that. Are you going to do? I'm going to make myself, I'm going to force myself to forget it so I can watch it again, all three seasons. I know you don't have the celebrity gene, Uh right? But is there anybody that you would still like to meet that you haven't? Maya Angelou was my big one. And I got to meet her and have a conversation with her and she sang to me, so. Wow. And how, were you completely present? When that was yes. happening? I was. Completely present. Yeah, because she's such a big person in my life. So, yeah, that was huge. So, I don't know everything after that. It's like, like, yeah. 
gravy, gravy. It's just life yeah. every day, making peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah. And if I could see anybody, it would be my grandmother. I would love for her to know my kids. Yeah. And your family's obviously still very close. Yeah, super I, close. That's just such a gift too. Yeah. Oh, it is so great to sit with you. I'm so glad I came to Houston. Thanks I'm so for glad I did such a this. long way. The Call to Courage is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Present Company is produced by Netflix and Gimlet Creative. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.